Good morning. Welcome to B2B Craftworks, a podcast about business writing. And today we're here with our co-host, Alyssa Greenfield, rocking it out for the month of July and August. Thank you. (laughs) And maybe for the first one, I just wanted to get to know you and let other people get to know you because it's been really fun being your friend for like, it's been a year, Uh, maybe two. Year and a half. Pandemic doesn't count. Yeah. A lifetime. Feels like we've known each other forever. (laughs) In the best yes. possible way. It's been a soothing experience. I can say that. So I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about your career and like introduction to self-employment? Because like most people, you were not born a baby self-employed. No, but I did grow up in a family of entrepreneurs. <laughs> that helps. And swore that I would never have my own business. For <laughs> the longest time, my mom is an entrepreneur, my aunt and uncle had their own smaller businesses. My grandfather had a big pen and flashlight factory that he designed all the equipment, had it built like wild. I grew up going to that factory and thought it was the most normal thing in the world that your grandpa is this wildly successful entrepreneur. (laughs) And still, I wanted to go to journalism school with an estimated starting salary of $30,000 and just do that for the rest of my life because I had no sense of money when I was younger, as we do. My last corporate job was head of content and and social media at this global enterprise tech company, super niche industry, 20 minutes from my front door, which was wonderful. Amazing marketing colleagues, like still friends with so many of them. A manager who just gave me so much freedom. She also just gave me the keys to basically 15 jobs in one content in multiple languages, dozens of products. But I love that level of control. So I was there for about a little over two years when my daughter was born, 2020, which was a wild time to become a parent. And the day before I went on leave, that company went through a lot of layoffs. My job was saved. Your 15 jobs were saved. My 15 jobs were saved. You were doing them. Yeah. And so that was the advantage of basically being an entire one woman global content and social media team. It was the day before I was supposed to come back from leave four months later. But there's another round of layoffs. Again, my 15 jobs were still safe. (laughs) And then another big group of people who I really relied on to get my job done. So many of them were gone. I came back to a completely different company. I charged forward doing my 15 jobs. And then right after my daughter's first birthday. I went to take a walk because just something was frustrating me with the company. And I just looked at her and I said, I cannot be at this company anymore. I can't do it. I started interviewing for jobs and I got a good amount of rejections. And at that point, something clicked in my head and I thought, I want to start my own business. For some reason, that feels like the cure to burnout. I ended up telling this this company that I was interviewing with and turning them into my first freelance client. You're making me question the one wing. I'm starting to think you might be an eight wing after all. So I didn't realize how little control I had until I was catching up with a friend years later. And she said, I feel like you going out on your own is taking back all this control. Not only control you didn't have in the business world, but then add having a kid in the middle of beginning of a pandemic she was like i'm pretty sure you starting your own business is you taking back all this control you didn't 
have of the year before. And that just felt so accurate and could have only come from somebody who knew me so well. Do you think there was a price to that? Because we say taking control, but we're also accepting risk, uncertainty, the character it takes to stand in front of someone and say, I can help you pay me. I feel like that was a hard transition for me. It was very hard for me. The first few months, aside from setting up my LLC and figuring out how to get a business bank account and deciding on a name and changing my tagline 50 times in the course of the month, <laughs> it took a good six months before I got my first client. And it was honestly, shout out to my husband who just kept saying, give it six months, give it nine months. If you don't have your first client by then or like a steady client, okay, we can talk about it. But give yourself time. Everything you've mm. done in the past, you've panicked and then figured it out. I leap, I panic. <laughs> and then I settle down and I figure it That's out. That's the adrenaline. It's like Mario. You leap to that thing, then you leap to the next one. So I've already, I've shared my origin story like a lot, just getting laid off from a marketing agency and jumping in. But I did not have a lot of role models for self-employment growing up. It was a lot of teachers, engineers, military, trust the system, work your job then come home and mow the lawn, that kind of thing. So I, I still marvel that I was able to function cutting that tie. Like it just seems like such a risk in hindsight. But fortunately, someone else cut it for me being laid off. So I really credit that as an origin story. When I think of the misty early days of being laid off, it was very sad. It's a personal thing, getting laid off. Like it's total rejection and betrayal and stuff. All these personal feelings that shouldn't be involved because it's business, but... It's your livelihood. So it's actually quite personal. But in those days of wandering around and reading a book outside in the middle of the day, it was just maybe I could try it. Maybe I could do that thing my boss was doing and sell to people and learn how to do all that. And then I just took to the internet and did all the procrastinate learning one does. But I had a deadline because I had to pay rent. So that's what cut out my procrastinate learning. When you first got started, would you say there's any employee habits in your business that you had to weed out? What would that look like? I had the opposite problem. I was so tired of process and this is the way we do things and don't shake things up. Your campaign that you launched was too creative. And I just like overcorrected and I was like, what? I can try anything. I can wake up tomorrow and start a new offering or send an email or launch a newsletter or whatever. Eventually, I calmed down. I got it out of my system <laughs> and proceeded the, to go on this ongoing journey of niching down. Bad props for starting it with a kid already, though, because now that I'm reflecting on it, I made my jump like four years, five years before having kids. So the amount of leisure time and just chilling I was able to do and process what I was dealing with. I can't even imagine what that was like. But you like had that family life and that pressure in a one-year-old already. I did. But I think for my personality, that worked out really well because I would have overthought so many more things. Um, Interesting. My time is limited and I'm going to trust my experience and my gut to just make of that time what I think I should be making of that time. And at that point, we had so many different childcare arrangements. Like 
lack of consistency. We were starting daycare in a few months. COVID daycare. Oh my gosh. We didn't expect to keep her home for 18 months, but combination of nanny and taking shifts and family. And thank goodness oh. my mother-in-law is a teacher because she was off in summers and my mom has her own business. So she could come a couple of days. It takes a village to raise a kid. It takes a village to build a business. Now I'm mad at you because I have to say the thing I never wanted to say, which is that the obstacle is the way. Because that book by Ryan Holiday, just that concept really bugs me because it's like romanticizing all the horrible things people have to deal with. But it does sound like having those limitations made it easier for you to make faster decisions and like really approach this in a mature way. Yeah, but I do well with constraints. For yeah. Sure. yeah. Whereas I'm over there thinking any constraints is a personal affront to me and I need to destroy them. So I do whatever I want to do at all times. <laughs> I have not that I want this to ever be a recurring thing, but I've had some of my most productive weeks and my daughter is homesick from school and my husband and I are taking shifts and the least productive weeks when it was like very few meetings. She's consistently at school. Yeah. So how has your ideal client evolved from when you started? Because I imagine you're not working with the exact same kind of people. You might have discovered stuff along the way. Not at all do they look the same. I have discovered stuff along the way, thankfully. My first year, I just wanted to prove to myself that I can make more money than I did at my full-time job. Same. I got everything, different industries, different editing, writing, strategy, content audit. I'm sure there's more. I had a company that wanted me to come on as basically a fractional CMO. That was like my first client. $21 an hour. <laughs> oh, they paid well, actually, which was great. Nice. The other part of my question is, did you, for those first clients, do you feel like you jumped in at a nice intermediate advanced rate or how did you deal with the money side? This might be a question to just unpack in terms of how the market has changed in the last mm. couple of years. I charged more for retainers my first year than I do now. Interesting. Part of that, I think, yes, it's adapting to the market this year. Part of it was that I had a lot of conversations, but I had very rigid ways of working. And it was like, this is my retainer. This is our project fee. This is how much it costs. Take it or leave it. And then I realized I can come in as this partner and I'm honest. They say, this is where things start at. And they say, this, yeah, I can't really, I can't really afford that. Then we can have a conversation and build something that is smaller for them and for my bandwidth, that's a good fit. And because I'm really focused on leaning into this niche versus my first year where it was take on everything and just make money, the benefit of that is I'm like planting these seeds for referrals for these people to be really successful and add on more work in the future. So I'm taking much more of a long-term strategy versus how do I get this quick project and make a ton of money this month or this quarter, which has taken some constant reminders for me to me that, okay, you're not making as much, but in the long run, you're going to love the work more. You are going to make as much, if not more. You're not going to completely burn yourself out because you are only going after projects that give you energy. I just want to stop and make a little room to appreciate you. Because that's, I'm having a moment now of reflecting oh on God. all the ways I've done things wrong. The idea 
that you are charging less now, like obviously not fraction of a fraction, but the idea that you didn't buy into that aggressive price ramping, escape what I do for a living and just make as much money as possible. I have so much respect for that because the narrative I see all the time is amp up those rates, work half as much, live this leisurely lifestyle, escaping the work that supposedly we want to do in the first place. So the fact that price, obviously charging for the value you're providing, charging a professional high rate, but not just like pursuing it with that cancer of growing the bottom line at any cost, and especially at the cost of your energy, your interests. I just think that's really missing today. And the idea that we can enjoy our work, like when I look back at my career, it's almost always been like, how can I be the sharpshooter people bring in to just rock it at a really high price? And then I peace out as much as I love individual clients, like the connection to the work or the connection to the assets I'm making has been very superficial. Sharpshooter keeps coming to mind. Like it was like execute the work, peace out, have a lot of money. And I just, that's worked for me in a lot of ways, but I see how that creates years and years of burnout that you have to recover from. So I just think you're doing it in a marvelously holistic way. Yeah. And to be clear, if I was not making a decent wage, even this year, I would definitely have to revisit and take on some projects that were a little bit outside of my ideal scope and rethink things. There's so many factors. And I think it is this balance of figuring out a working environment that doesn't completely burn you out and sets you up for success down the road. Yeah, I'm picturing it like, like, what's the size of the puzzle piece they need? And it's not like you're going to blow some dust into that area. You're going to put a puzzle piece out. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm saying for charging seven, eight, nine thousand your first year, and now it's more like five, six, seven, even just the element of not going full marketer bro and just trying to triple every year. I think that's fantastic. So you're a couple years in and it's working. Do you have a plan for if you get bored of it? I've just had my sharpshooter era and hundreds of white papers, of articles, just every brand that could be in conception. I feel like I've just danced around all the niches. I'm definitely burned out on that, though. So I'm looking for a lot of meaning and I want to slow it down and have that deeper connection that you've gone after. Are you ever worried you're going to get bored of the storytelling or the thought leadership? I think one of the things I loved about my first true thought leadership client and the reason I decided to dish down into thought leadership with founders is that there's just, I can't imagine ever feeling like I'm telling the same story twice. Everyone just comes to it with such different experiences and think about being in the corporate world. And I would try to interview people for thought leadership and they would always just go back to talking about products. My perspective is this product is amazing. Yeah. And I'm like, but what about you? Human. Love to hear that. And that's why they call it boring though, because if you aren't saying anything other than how great the product is, then that is boring. I'm thinking of a, a huge like global shipping company that I worked with. And it was like, you try to answer an interview question and it comes back to, oh, this is a great place to talk about feature X, Y, and Z. And it's like, that's not interesting right now. So maybe tell me about yeah. you. What do you think about that? Yeah. And it's not even their fault, right? Because just corporate mm-hmm. culture just kind of removes the individual and personal might be oh when you're having lunch together in the cafeteria or you're going for a walk around the parking lot after that 
you might talk about your families and your lives outside of work. But when you're in a meeting, it's just, let's talk about products. That's just the world that so many of us know. And this might get boring at some point or platforms will change and I'll decide I'm, I'm too old to create content for whatever platform that doesn't LinkedIn. even exist. <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn might go away and future B2B might be TikTok and I'll just completely give up and try something new. <laughs> what impact do you think the generational shift might be having? My take is because new generations are shifting into the buyer seat, that's why we're seeing like a rise in video stuff and TikTok and like B2B is getting an update. I think younger generations aren't going to leave the personal stuff for taking a walk during lunch. Like I think that's coming into our workday. Do you think that's going to have an impact on storytelling or do you see that at all? I would imagine we're already starting to see it. And you and me as millennials doing the interviews. Yeah. A lot of my clients, not all, but a lot of them are younger to middle millennials. They've definitely talked to some that are younger than that, bordering on Gen Z. And so we do talk about like greater willingness to share. I feel like it's already been happening for longer than we realize. And the reason why the reason why more pers- true thought leadership is going over really well now, maybe in LinkedIn's era of just being a job search site or when people just started to post content, whatever it was, even five years ago, this wouldn't have worked. The people would have said, go to Twitter, go to Instagram, go, I don't know, what was he? What did people say back then? Right. <laughs> Lifetime ago. Back on Clubhouse. <laughs> Leave no, that stuff to Clubhouse. Yeah. I'd be curious from your perspective, like, where's the line of vulnerability and authenticity? Especially maybe thinking about my own journey and having, uh, what's the PC way of saying this? Not fully appreciating the delights of being a mother, shall we say. Sometimes I feel like a fake if I show up and I'm not complaining because I'm having such a complaint-worthy experience behind the scenes. But also, at a certain point, you need to lead and be positive in the face of different challenges. So do you have any thoughts on where's the line of being vulnerable enough that you're being a full person online, but not over-disclosing so much that you're just becoming a personality? I'm thinking of perhaps one of your clients who went viral for some very personal things. Yeah. The line for that person, like really riding that wave of sharing the personal experience versus keeping the attention on his very successful company. It's, that seems like a line that's difficult to navigate if you're helping someone. I think there's two questions to ask if you're thinking, if you're on the fence about sharing something. The first is, why do you want to share it? What is your goal? And that goal might be business or it might be mostly I post about things that are related to my company and my business journey. But this is so important that I need to get it out there. This is a part of my story that hasn't been told yet. And the second piece of that, once you get clear on the why, to me is, do I care what people have to say? Because that post that you referenced, yeah, he had a lot of people who were like, this doesn't belong on LinkedIn. He had a lot of people who reached out to him personally, and it had this incredible ripple effect. Demo requests actually spiked as a result of that post. And people in communications and marketing at that company were like, I don't think he should have posted that. And he said, 
it's a disservice not to share. I'm putting it out there. And it had overall this amazing response. I want to highlight that client, though, like a very personal experience, like life and all that stuff directly led to more demos of the product. That's the mysterious connection that's worth reflecting on in thought leadership. Because when people have a sense that they know you or understand, like when you capture attention or curiosity by sharing personal things, it bleeds over into business. It gives them a reason to pick you over a number of different things, different products that were offering the same product. And they had a client who he had been sharing for probably six plus months on LinkedIn consistently at this point, but they had a client chose them over a competitor because of what he decided to share. They said, I feel like I know what I'm getting with you. The team you lead. That is the slogan of thought leadership, man. I feel like I know what I'm getting with you. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred thousand percent. You just made my future new business calls a lot easier. (laughs) But make that the business card, honestly. Yeah. And I think I'd add a layer, like when you're deciding to share or not, what I've had to reflect on, and I'm in a different line of business. So I'm attracting writers and people who want to grow their business. So I'm going to share things more towards the lifestyle bent, but it's, are you expressing it for a purpose or are you venting? And I do try to delete the things that are just venting. I've certainly deleted stuff within a couple hours because I just didn't want to look like I was complaining again. So I try to very strategically complain to share the reality of the obstacles people are dealing with when we have a family and we're running a business, but not just vent. If I'm going to vent, that's going to be on YouTube live, which is later today. TV complaining. Context setting complaints. Yeah. What do you want people to take away from this? Which is that I'm not perfect and I'm frustrated a lot. I think that's a message, especially for women in business, to be able to share that. Yeah. Complain, but make it strategy. (laughs) Strategic complaining. So maybe just to lean into when you were getting ramped up and you tried some things and some of it stuck and some of it didn't, what kind of criteria would you share if someone else is making that similar leap? What kind of things do you pay attention to when you're working with a client to see if they're right for you or not? I think energy, obviously, is one you've already mentioned. I mean, there will always be outliers, but you get a pretty good sense early on when the first call is more of a conversation. I'm talking like new business. They haven't even signed on yet. It's more of a conversation than just a transactional, here's what I need. And you say, here's what my business does and how I can help you. And here's what it might cost. And here's what you get. It really is this. What would it be like to work together? Do we get each other? Are my business challenges something that you have experience with? Can I trust you to navigate this with me? And I usually look for that. The ones that have a general sense that they need marketing or content or thought leadership support, but also this openness to having you be the expert and really guide them with your recommendations. And they're open to this dance, this collaboration. Your dance partner. It's a dance partner. It really is. Can I caveat that though? Because I'm just thinking of some of the coaching clients I have. We'll do a practice prospecting call. And the main thing that people do is they feel so nervous and they feel like they need to control that first conversation and just get right to business. So I think part of it could be, again, just being present to connection and becoming a person who is able to just get on a phone with a stranger and be like, so tell me about you. I'll tell you about me. Let's see if we can vibe. Because it's almost if you go into it so stressed out about the interaction that you can't even be yourself and see if you vibe with that person, that's going to be 
a problem. It's going to prevent you from making the connections that could be with the right client. It comes with time working with coaches. You honestly have worked with some incredible coaches that have changed how I think about those conversations too over the years. I started out with, I'd prepare personalized questions. I do all this research for every new business call. And over time, I started just getting comfortable enough to show up and have a conversation. And hey, it's awkward. Okay. It takes two people to be awkward. (laughs) I love when I talk to people and they say, oh, I just felt so comfortable or I felt safe. And it's okay, good. We're built that foundation that quickly because largely because of how they were willing to show up, not in a transactional way. And what they expected to get out of that first conversation, not even so much about me, then that's a pretty good clue that we're going to do some really cool work together. So leaning into the energy part, I think for me, that comes up when if I see their name in my inbox, if I have a call scheduled with them for that week, do I feel like a little buzz of excitement or do I feel like that clenching down panic of, oh no, this is one more thing to do. That's been something to reflect on. Alyssa, this was super fun to talk about and I'm super excited that you're going to be the co-host for the next month. Yeah. So thank you. Any chance to talk with you? Thank you. So for the next one, we're going to come in. We're going to talk about thought leadership and a little bit of AI into that. So that's going to be fun. And we're going to find out that we actually disagree on something fairly fundamental. So you got to tune in to find out what that disagreement is. Obviously, we're going to stay friends through all of this. And I just really like hearing friends argue personally. That's kind of my thing. Yeah. Now I want to know what that, what it is that we just, <laughs> 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 is it? We must have talked about something at some point. Oh, yeah. So everybody tune in and we'll see you next episode.